0: scripture. If you would, take out your copy of God's Word. Turn with me to the book of 2 Timothy, chapter 3 verses 16 and 17. Hear now the word of the Lord. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. The man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Let's pray. Father, Hallowed be thy name. Lord, we are thankful for your word. We're thankful for what you have preserved over the years. We're thankful that we can feed off of the truth of your word every day. God, I pray that as we dig into this issue of scripture and talking about the scriptures, that you would help us to understand their history Help us to understand what you have done down through the generations and how what we have is a treasure beyond our imagination. So, God, we ask that you would come now, that you would be among us, that you'd be working in us, and that you would conform us to the image of Christ. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. Well, good morning, church. It's good to be back with you again. I'm sure some of you are wondering this morning why we are reading from 2 Timothy and not talking about John. Well, the truth is, today we are actually addressing an issue that has arisen in John's gospel. As we have been working through this book, we have come to a place in John that is going to require us to stop and give some Uh, explanation not about the content of Scripture per se, but about the Bible itself, about the nature of Scripture, and about what is included in Scripture. So with that being said, if you have your Bibles, I actually do want you to turn over with me to where we are in John, to John chapter 7. Now while you're turning over there, I do want to explain for those of you new that today is going to be a little bit different than our typical Sunday mornings. Uh, This is not going to be a normal sermon at all. Uh, Usually we're working through books of the Bible, verse by verse, preaching God's Word very systematically. And one of the beauties of that endeavor is that we do not skip anything in the Scripture. We preach the tough text, we preach the obscure passages, as well as the verses that we all know and love. And for that reason... As we have been working through this, we've come to an issue that honestly doesn't get addressed all that much on Sunday mornings. But it is extremely important for us to understand. All right, if you've made it to John chapter 7, I want you to look with me where we are at verse 53. And I want you to notice something. Unless you are holding in your hands a King James Version or a New King James Version, you are going to see the woman caught in adultery starting in verse 53 all the way down in, verse, in chapter 8, verse 11 in brackets. If you have the NIV, it's in italics. If you have the message or the passion so-called translation, you just need a new Bible. <laughs> and I would be happy to explain that to you after service. But if you have an ESV or an NASB or a CSB or an NET or any other faithful translation like that, you're going to see brackets with a note or a footnote that says something to the effect of the earliest manuscripts do not include 753 through 811. The question is, what are we to do with that? What does that mean? Why do some manuscripts have this story and and others do not? Well, today I'm going to seek to answer some of those questions for you. But right out in front, right out of the gate, I'm going to tell you that the overwhelming majority of scholars, conservative Bible-believing scholars, do not believe this section to be original to John's gospel. Meaning, this was not written by the Apostle John, nor should it be treated as part of the gospel of John. Now, I know for some of you, those of you who have never heard such things or have never run into this issue, this, this can feel a bit jarring. And it can make you think, man, then can we trust our Bibles? Are we, are we taking away from the Scripture here? What are we doing? What's going on? How do, how do, we, how do we process this? Well, to answer these questions, what I want us to do today is answer them by looking at four main questions. First, we're going to start with, how did we get our Bibles? Specifically, the history of the New Testament. Second, we're going to answer the question, what is textual criticism, and why is it so important? And third, we're going to answer the question, so then what do we do with this passage in John, and why do scholars conclude that it's not original? And then lastly, we're going to address the question, is Scripture then reliable? Can we trust our Bibles? Can we trust what we have? Now, that's that's a tall order, and this is going to be an unusual sermon, if honestly it could even be called that, because today I'm not really preaching the content of the Bible, but more about the Bible. But I believe this to be vitally important for all of us. We need to understand our Bibles and the history of our Bibles. We need to understand the treasure that God has given us. And we do need to understand why there are issues like this and why that should not affect our confidence in what God has given us. So today's not going to answer every question that you may have on this topic, but I hope it gives everyone a greater perspective and appreciation of what this book is and where it came from. So with that said, let's start with discussing how did we get our Bibles. Now, for clarity, again, I'm only going to be talking about the New Testament. Um, The Old Testament is a different matter. It has a different story, a different history that, unfortunately, we just don't have the time for this morning. Uh, The two Testaments have different characteristics uh, and different histories. Now, there's overlap in their characteristics, to be sure. All Scripture is breathed out by God, as we just read. But the Old Testament was written and assembled over the span of around 1,000 years, whereas the New Testament was written all in the course of the first century, in the decades immediately following the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. But suffice it to say... Our greatest confidence in the Old Testament and the nature of the Old Testament actually does come from the New. Why do I say that? Well, because the same books that we have in our Bibles are the very same books that the apostles and the Lord Jesus himself quoted over and over and over as Scripture, as God's Word. And so we can have confidence in the Old Testament because of how it was regarded in the New but our focus today is on the New Testament. How did, we, how did we get it? I mean, as we all obviously know, it did not come to us, you know, bound together with our Old Testament with, with gold edging in a nice soft cover like this one. Uh, how did it come down to us then? Well, the New Testament, you need to understand, is, is not a singular book. Uh, it's actually a compilation of 27 books or letters written by a plurality of authors. There's actually eight or nine different authors of the New Testament, and the reason I say eight or nine is because we don't know who wrote the book of Hebrews. Uh, Some believe it was Paul. Many think it could have been Luke or Apollos or somebody else. We know it was somebody close to Paul if it wasn't him because Uh, The author gives his readers an update on Timothy at the end of the book, so he was very close to the same circle as Paul. But regardless, eight or nine authors wrote the New Testament, and they wrote these documents in the Greek language. You ever wonder why we're always going back to Greek? Well, that's why, because it was originally written in Greek. It was written in what we call Koine Greek, which is common Greek. Uh, That was the most widespread and known and understood language of the time in the Roman Empire. It was the language of the people. If you knew other languages, you likely knew Koine Greek uh, because it was the trade language. And so to write these scriptures in Koine Greek was to allow them to spread like wildfire. And each one of these men who wrote was either an apostle... Or an apostle's associate, like, like Mark. Uh, Mark, uh, who wrote the Gospel of Mark, is the man we know as John Mark. And, and he very likely wrote under the oversight and by the testimony of the apostle Peter. That's why Mark has a lot of Peter in it. Uh, so each of these books carries with it what we call apostolic authority. The apostles were those men chosen by and ordained by Christ to be his authoritative messengers. And the entire church was built on the foundation of their message. As, as Paul says in Ephesians two, 2, the church was built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets with Christ Jesus being the cornerstone. And you, you see this actually practically play out in the, in the book of Acts when Peter gets up and preaches his first sermon, and the, and the church is born. 3,000 people are added to the church all in one day, and it says this, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to the prayers. Now, the reason for that, for their devotion to the apostles' teaching, is because the apostles' teachings are Christ's teachings. They were his authoritative Messengers, and as these men wrote and codified the truth of the gospel and the teachings of Christ and the teachings of the new covenant, they did so all in their gospels, in the history of the church, the book of Acts, in the the epistles to the churches, in the pastoral epistles, in the general epistles, and in John's apocalyptic vision, what we call the book of Revelation. These men wrote these documents. And they did so under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, with the authority of Christ. As, as Peter said, as we read this morning in Second Peter chapter 1, "...no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit." Or 2 Timothy, all Scripture is breathed out by God. That's its character. It is theonoustis, breathed out by God. So the reality is, there are two authors to all of Scripture. Scripture has what's called dual authorship. The the divine author who inspired every word, and the human authors, the agents of God Who penned his words. And this didn't come about by some kind of trance or some kind of formal dictation from on high. This came about as the Holy Spirit moved through these men, carried them along, working through each one's unique circumstance and personality. Now, many have asked the question did these men know that they were writing scripture? And were their writings considered Scripture when they wrote them in the first century? Or did some church council just down the road declare it to be so and it was so? Now, if if you would like to learn about the formation, this is just a side note, the formation of the canon of Scripture and how it was recognized and not chosen in church history, canon just means standard, I would point you to the work of Michael Kruger. He's done phenomenal on that. It's not something that we have time for this morning. But without question, these men absolutely knew what they were writing. They knew that they were writing Scripture, and their writings were considered Scripture as soon as they were penned. And this is evident in many places in the New Testament. I'll I'll give you just a few. 1 Corinthians 14, verse 37. Paul, writing to the Corinthians on many matters, in this context he was writing about orderly worship and the use of gifts, and he finished by saying this If anyone thinks he is a prophet or spiritual, he should acknowledge that the things I am writing to you are a command of the Lord. If anyone does not recognize this, he is not recognized. Now, the litmus test of one's legitimacy was whether or not they recognized the divine authority of Paul's writings. Paul knew that what he wrote came from God. In a very similar manner, in 1 John 4, 6, the apostle John, speaking of of the apostles and asserting his apostolic authority, he said this. He said, We are from God. Whoever knows God listens to us. Whoever is not from God does not listen to us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. Wow, you talk about an audacious claim. Either John is a very arrogant deceiver, or he is the apostle of Christ. Because again, he says that the accepting of his words are the litmus test for those who know God and have the spirit of truth. And the rejection of his words reveals those who are not from God and have the spirit of error. 1 Thessalonians 5 Paul concluded his epistle to that church by saying this in verse 27. He says, I put you under oath before the Lord to have this letter read to all the brothers. Now, why would you do that unless you knew it was Scripture? As he would tell Timothy later on, the church was to be given to the public reading of the Scripture, and that included his own letters. And again, this is why... John the Apostle said at the beginning of Revelation, Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it. See, they they absolutely knew that they were writing Scripture. That's without a shadow of a doubt. But the question is, did others know? Did other people recognize what they were receiving? And I think absolutely. I think Peter makes that quite clear clear listen to Peter's view of of Paul's letters in 2nd Peter chapter 3 verse 16 and remember that this this is the same book where Peter has defined the nature of scripture those are carried along by the Holy Spirit and he concludes this letter by saying this count the patience of our Lord as salvation just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given to him as he does in all of his letters when he speaks in them of these matters. There are some things in them that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do the other scriptures. Clearly, the apostle Peter knew that Paul's writing in his day, in the first century, was scripture on par with the rest of scripture. And notice Notice he doesn't say this in an informative manner. He doesn't say to his readers, hey guys, you need to understand that Paul's writings are actually Scripture. He says this in a passive manner, meaning there's a shared assumption between him and his readers that they both understood that Paul's writings were Scripture, that they were theonoustos, that they were God-breathed. So not only did these men know what they were writing, but so too did the early church know what they were receiving. And it is for that reason, right there, that from the very beginning, a long, long history of copying and transmitting began. Because they knew this was the Word of God. Now, you have to remember... The first century is nearly 1,500 years before there was ever a printing press. And so if you wanted to have your own copy of a document, you had to do so by hand. And they did. This was very much just a part of their culture. It was a part of how things were done prior to the printing press. They had scribes. Some of them were professional scribes, and some of them were not. But they were very careful to execute the process of copying documents word for word by hand. And in the first century, as the writers of the New Testament sent out their letters, they were carefully copied and circulated among the churches. In fact, you you even see that intent written in the book of Colossians. Colossians 4.16, Paul said, When this letter has been read among you, Have it also read in the church of the Laodiceans, and see that you also read the letter from Laodicea. So so the book of Colossians from the get-go, though it was written to the church at Colossae, it was not just intended for the church of Colossae. It was intended for the church. It was Scripture to be circulated. And further, the Colossians were to get a hold of the letter that was currently at Laodicea, which most scholars conclude almost unanimously that that was the book of Ephesians being in circulation at that point. These letters were meant to be circulated, and they were. And they were not circulated, though, by giving over the originals. Everyone kept the ones they received. They were circulated by copying them and then sending them out. Many would even come to those churches, come to the church of Colossae, for example, and make their own copy, and then take it back to the believers in their area, whatever geographical region they happen to come from. And this process of of copying and distributing by hand continued for centuries and centuries, going all over the world for nearly 1,500 years until the invention of, of the printing press, and because of that, in the historical record, we have an embarrassment of riches when it comes to the original manuscripts, and and when speaking of manuscripts, that's what we're talking about, that's what's being referenced, is the remaining record of these handwritten copies that have survived all of these years. Now, let it be known that none of the original documents, known as the autographs, the actual letters written by the apostles, have survived. And, and that is not at all surprising. They were written on papyrus, uh, a paper-like material from a papyrus plant uh, that did not age well, especially with humidity. And the originals would have been the most frequently copied, the most exposed, and the most handled. And likely they wore out within about a hundred years, and so we don't have the original documents, but that's true for every single ancient document that there is in existence. No originals have survived, but at the end of the day, that doesn't matter at all, Uh, because what is important is not that we have a the first copy to put up in a museum somewhere as an idolized relic of church history, what is important is that we have the content of what is written, that we have God's actual and inspired words handed down to us. And we do in the manuscripts that have survived. Now, just to give you some perspective on this, On on how much we have, let's let's compare what we have with some other ancient writings from history. Now, if you've heard some of this before, you may notice that some of these numbers have increased, and that's because there's been more archaeological discoveries. But as we look at, at other historical documents, the one we have the best record of outside of the New Testament is Homer's Iliad. Homer's Iliad was written uh, around 800 B.C., and we have in our uh, possession over 1,500 manuscripts of Homer's Iliad, partial and full. But the earliest copy that we possess was written over 400 years after the Iliad was originally written. For Caesar's Gallic Wars, written around 75 B.C., we have about 250 manuscripts partial and full, that have survived. The earliest copy we have is dated about a thousand years after the original was written. The writings of Plato, you've heard of Plato? Written around 400 B.C. We now have around 200 manuscripts, partial and full, but the earliest copy that we possess is dated around 1,400 years after it was originally written. Now, to compare that with the New Testament, New Testament was written in the first century, and we have just shy of 6,000 Greek manuscripts, partial and full, and that doesn't even include all the other ones that were translated into other languages very early on that have been discovered. That would bring it up to about 25,000 manuscripts. In the earliest Greek manuscript that we have, it's called P52. Some papyri did survive in dry areas. It's of the Gospel of John. And it is dated around 130 AD or earlier. Maybe even as early as 100 AD. What that means is that's around a decade to three decades after the death of the last apostle who was John. That is remarkably significant when looking at ancient documents. Now, as if that was not enough, beyond all of those manuscripts, we also have the citations of the scriptures from the early church fathers beginning in the 2nd century. And there is, in fact, an estimated well over a million citations of the New Testaments in their writings. And if we somehow lost every manuscript in history we can actually reconstruct the New Testament just from the citations of the church fathers, which is pretty significant, from their books, their sermons, and their commentaries on the Bible that have survived. Now, The, the truth is, no other ancient document in history is even in the same ballpark as the historical attestation of what we have in the New Testament. Now, with all that being said, you need to understand that what happens when you have thousands and thousands and thousands of handwritten manuscripts is that you have thousands upon thousands of variants. Now, what is a variant? A variant is when you have a difference in the reading of a manuscript. So you put two manuscripts side by side, you're looking at the same verse, and there is a difference. Maybe it's a singular word. Uh, maybe it's an abbreviation, maybe it's a missing line, maybe it's word order, something there is difference. There is some kind of difference. And we should expect that. Uh, These are scribes spending hours upon hours for days upon days just, just copying good faith errors would unquestionably take place. And it's important for you to know this and to be aware of it. Because those who are enemies of the faith often coming from Muslim apologists or from your uh, local professors in your religious departments of your secular universities, they love to deceitfully use this information to attempt to undermine the Christian faith and especially to go after young students. And those who are naive to how this works uh, could easily fall prey to some pretty misleading rhetoric. For example, one of the things that a man named Bart Ehrman, uh, who is in enemy of the faith, um, loves to throw out there without explanation is that there are more variants among the manuscripts than there are words in the New Testament. That's true. In fact, conservative scholar Dan Wallace says that's actually an understatement. So what what do we do with that? Well, that can sound pretty upsetting if you don't understand it. Because the issue is not the number of variants. The issue is the significance of the variance. It's the weight of the variance. And the reality is, the overwhelming majority of variants have something to do with spelling errors. Nothing to do with content at all. So, for example, in one of the oldest and complete manuscripts we have, uh, it's called Codex Vaticanus, the copyist who made that manuscript spelled John's name wrong every time. In Greek... There's there's two ends so to speak in John, and he used one every time. That's a variant. Now I, I did a search on how many times John's name popped up in the New Testament. It's 140. So there's up to 140 variants right there. Just looking at one word from one manuscript. It's not quite as scary. Now, you 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 see how these variants could take place. It. it And that doesn't matter at all, because everyone reading Codex Vaticanus knows exactly what he's talking about, and it has no effect on the meaning of the text. And the vast, and I mean overwhelming majority of the variants are easy to see and spot correct spelling errors like that. Now, behind that, uh, way behind that, the other most common variant types are things like the use of, of names, the use of the article, the, and a, Word order, which matters far less in, in Greek and stu- just stuff like that, very minor things that are that are detectable and, and correctable, and then in a very few instances, you have variants that actually make a difference to the meaning of the text. But the estimation dan wallace who 's a brilliant uh, textual critic um, he estimates that ninety nine point nine eight percent of the variants have no effect on the text whatsoever which shows how remarkably well the great majority of scribes did in their transmission through history but the question still remains then that we need to understand is okay there are variants most of them don't matter but how do we know the difference between the variants how do we know which ones are correct especially with those ones that do matter And this is where textual criticism comes in. And this is why possession of all of those manuscripts is so important. So what is textual criticism? Why does this matter? Well, textual criticism is essentially the science and art of analyzing ancient texts in order to ascertain their original wording. Uh, I'm going to say that again. Textual criticism is the science and art of analyzing ancient texts in order to ascertain their original wording. And this is possible with precision because of the vast array of manuscripts that have been providentially preserved for us. Now, another sleight of hand that we will hear from those who are trying to discredit the faith is that manuscripts can't be trusted because they are just a copy of a copy of a copy of a copy. And they will often use the telephone game as an illustration of this. You all remember the telephone game? Where you whisper something to your neighbor and they tell it to the next person, 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 person, until it comes all the way back around to you and you find out that the message has gotten so distorted that it's practically lost. And that's their illustration. Well, that is not at all how things went down. Rather than being linear in fashion, like the telephone game, It was more like a spider web of sorts. Uh, So, for example, if I had the book of Romans, uh, the original, whatever you want to say, and I I picked out a singular person in in this group over here, this section over here, and, and they represent a geographical region. And then a person from this section came to me, and they also wanted to copy the book of Romans, this geographical region, and then a person from this section, and then a person from this section over here. They all come to me, they copy the book of Romans, and they go back to their their, their regions. They then share what they have copied with 10 other believers in their section, and those 10 believers make copies, and they go further back, and and then each of those ten gives it to ten more. Until everyone in this room has copied the book of Romans, generation by generation. That is more akin to what happened. Now, would there be errors? Oh, you bet. If you've never copied, I actually have copied the book of Romans once. I was required to do it in seminary. There's going to be errors. You, you might miss a word. Y- your eyes might drop down. You miss an entire line. Uh, You might misspell some things. There's going to be errors everywhere. So then how would we discover uh, which errors uh, are actual errors? How do we discover what the original reading was? Well, it's very unlikely that you would make the same errors. So if I took a copy from this first section and I noticed an odd reading in chapter 1, verse 5, And so I I went to this second geographical region and looked at one of their manuscripts, and I look at chapter 1, verse 5. Okay, they're different. There's something different. So then I went over here to the third section and the fourth section, and I compared those with the others, and I noticed that the third section and the fourth section line up with what's in the second section. I know the first section is wrong. I know that 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 reading, there is an error. They dropped a word. They misspelled a word, uh, Because these three would not agree, they're not coming from the same place as that one. Or similarly, I could go, if I saw, I went to the back, to a later generation, and I found an odd reading, and I came to an earlier generation of the same family of manuscripts, and I see that these earlier generations don't have that reading, I know that somewhere in between here and there, that error took place. Somewhere in between this time and that time, that error got inserted. That's how how textual criticism works. Now, that's a bit of a simplification. There's a lot that goes into it, but that gives you an idea of how this science and art actually works. And because of it, there is absolute precision uh, to what they are finding. So now, when we think about this passage in John, why... Why do they deem this not original? Well, you need to know there's only two major extended passages uh, that are in question because of what was revealed in the ancient manuscripts. Only two. It's the ending of Mark and John. Now, there's a few other phrases or sentences or things like that, but not very many. It's just these two as far as the major ones. And as a side note, they're all marked in your Bible. So no one's hiding this from any, anybody. It's, you will see often, um, you'll come across a footnote that says, uh, some of the ancient manuscripts say this. So the question is, why do scholars not believe that this particular passage is not original to the Gospel of John? Well, there's two lines of evidence that they consider, external and Internal. And this is all part of textual criticism. The external are looking at the manuscript traditions as well as church history and things like that. External to the content. The internal are looking at the actual content and how it fits with the context, the style, the vocabulary, all of that. So when it comes to external evidence, this passage, John 7.53-8.11, through 8, 11, does not show up in any Greek manuscript until the 5th century. All the manuscripts prior to that go from 752 directly to 812. Now, as a side note, chapter breaks were not added until the 13th century. Verse numbers not until the 15th and 16th century. So when, I, when I'm using these numbers, I'm just talking about the content, not, not the actual numbers. They weren't original. Now, a second line of external evidence is that when it does appear in later manuscripts it actually catches on very slowly over the course of centuries. And when it appears, it appears in several different places. The most common was after 752, but it also popped up after 736, after 744, and even in chapter 21, and even in the book of Luke. Uh, So this was clearly a story that was unstable, and it was looking for a home. Another factor is the early... Manuscripts in all the other languages, omit it. It's not there. And when it comes to the church fathers and their, their citations, they go directly from 752 to 812. In their commentaries, on their sermons, it's not there. So when I said you could reconstruct the entire Bible from the church fathers, you could not reconstruct this story because it wasn't there. When you look at the Eastern Church Fathers, nobody cited it until the 10th century. And finally, last bit of external evidence is those little markings in your Bible, uh, the, the brackets, that's actually not new to us. That's not modern. People want to say that's modern. It's actually not. Many of the ancient manuscripts that did include this story put it in asterisks showing that they were uh, uncomfortable with its actual textual tradition and its inclusion. So that's been going on for centuries. Well, that's the external evidence. What about the internal evidence? Does the internal evidence tell the same story? Well, yes, it does. First of all, this story breaks up the flow. Uh, the, the Feast of Tabernacles is the background of everything that's going on in chapter 7 and chapter 8. And it is all part of an extended back and forth between Christ and the Jews. And 8.12 picks up right where 7.52 left off. Second... The language and style and vocabulary of this section is extremely different than the rest of the Gospel of John. It actually more mirrors the the synoptic Gospels, like Luke, in its language. For example, the mention of the Mount of Olives. That's common uh, to the synoptic Gospels, but it's not mentioned anywhere else in the Gospel of John. But further, the most significant internal evidence is there's 14 vocabulary words in this tiny section that are found nowhere else in the Gospel of John, and most of them nowhere in any of John's writings. He simply did not use these words. They're not part of his regular speech. So both the internal and the external evidence show, I believe quite conclusively, that John did not write this. This is not a part of the Gospel of John. And, and that's not just my opinion. That's the conclusion of the great majority of Bible-believing scholars, men like D.A. Carson, Leon Morris, Daniel Wallace, Andreas Kostenberger, Herman Ritterboss, James White, Edward Klink, Bruce Metzger, Murray Harris, and many, many others. I could just keep going. Most of them, actually. Well, what do we do with that? The truth is people struggle less with the ending of Mark uh, because Mark's ending is pretty bizarre and and it it is more uncharacteristic of the rest of the gospel. But people loved this story. So it's a little bit more emotionally charged uh, than some other places. And I I think people love the story for good reason. I, I, I think this story got inserted because it was likely an oral tradition passed down through the ages And somebody loved it so much that they included it. So this story well could have happened, but that doesn't make it part of the inspired text. It's not what the apostle wrote. So therefore, it is not the word of God. And for that reason, I can't, in good conscience, preach it as if it is. Because when we're talking about inspiration and inerrancy, We are only talking about that which the inspired authors actually wrote. Well, how then did it get into our English translations? That's a good question with a long story that we don't have time for this morning in full. But suffice it to say, when the King James was translated, it was translated off of a couple of dozen manuscripts, not 6,000. And the, all of those manuscripts were dated to the late medieval period. So they did not have at their possession any of the oldest and best manuscripts. Uh, but the late manuscripts they did have included this story. And because of its long tradition in the King James Bible, modern publishers and other translations of, of other translations decided to include it with brackets and a footnote of explanation rather than to remove it altogether. Now, that's, that's a decision that they have made. You can agree or disagree with it. That's what they've done. Well, understanding all of this, should we now ask the question, should this undermine our trust in the reliability of Scripture? And the answer to that is absolutely not. To the contrary, it should actually support it and uphold it. Because the providential record has shown a remarkable consistency from all different geographical locations and parts of the world on what was written in our Bibles. We know without a shadow of a doubt that the the words of the apostles have been preserved for us. And, And the places where errors were made in transmission, things that God inserted, we can see them through textual criticism. In the wisdom of God, the way he, this providentially unfolded, it actually prevented his word from being lost or corrupted rather than caused it. And I'll explain why. It actually ha- will help to compare this with a different historical, sacred, so-called, book. If we compare it with the Quran, James White brings this out quite well in his book, What Every Christian Needs to Know About the Quran." It's an excellent book. The, the book of the Quran was supposedly given to the prophet Muhammad by personal revelation from the angel Gabriel alone in a cave, which gave birth to Islam. And the Quran was never written down or codified by Muhammad. It was passed on by, to a few of his followers by recitation, and they memorized it. After Muhammad died, several of those key men who had the Quran in their heads... Died in battle. And so one of the key leaders sought to codify it before the rest of them died. And they did that by collecting the few parts that were written. They were written on palm stalks, on rocks, and on camel bones. And then they got the rest from the heads of those remaining men who had memorized the Quran. After this codification project was completed, over the next two decades, differences began to surface already. And the differences in the copies of the Quran were leading to disputes within Islam. And the leader at that time, fearing a division, ordered a revision and orders all of the manuscripts and copies and partial manuscripts to be brought in. And they revised and made their own copies, admitting to adding new verses along the way that were supposedly missed at the first codification. Don't know how they would know that. But then they sent out those new, freshly made copies to everyone else to be the standard. And to ensure that no one would ever bring their work into question, they burned everything. They burned all of the record. This is, this is Islamic history recorded in their own books. All the prior record, gone. And yet we are supposed to trust That the Quran is the exact words of Allah given to one man in a cave through an angel codified by another man dependent upon the memory of others and then revised and added to later by another man with everything else being burned. This is what is classified as a controlled transmission. It was under the control of centralized authorities which makes it susceptible to corruption that cannot be detected what was the difference between what was in muhammad's head and the first codification did those guys truly remember everything what was the difference between the first codification and the revisions what did they burn no one will ever know because there is no record and that that's just the external problems to the quran the internal problems are even worse you want to get into those i would suggest that book i mentioned But then when you compare that to the way the Scripture was transmitted, it is absolute night and day. The transmission of the Bible is classified as uncontrolled because there was never any central authority that oversaw this project. The letters were written by a plurality of men sent to various churches and then copied like wildfire to be circulated everywhere in geographical regions all over the world. What that means is corruption without detection is actually literally impossible. If some leader sought to change the scripture, he would have to collect all of the copies from all over the world, not just in his little domain. His little domain would be hard enough, but then every other copy. It's impossible. And don't think that's not been attempted in history. It's actually being attempted right now. This very moment. Xi Jinping in China is actively working on a major project to rewrite the Bible. But it won't work. It's a, it's a fool's errand. And in this, this so-called Bible that he's creating, he's, made, he's actually taken this very story that we're talking about, and he makes Jesus say to the woman, I too am a sinner, and then Jesus kills her. He's making Jesus a sinner, and then he's got his writings, his sayings, all through the Scripture. It will never work, though. It's a fool's errand. Because the Bible has already saturated that country and the rest of the world, and Christians will always be smuggling the truth into His domain. God is building His church in China, and the little boy Xi Jinping will not stop Him. The truth is, God has preserved His Word through natural means in such a way that we can have absolute confidence that what we have in our hands is the veritable Word of God. And isn't this just consistent with what God has always done, with the way God operates? He chose fishermen, not angels, to deliver the truth of Christ to the world. When all of us come to know Christ personally, we do so not by visitations and visions and dreams. We do so because some fellow sinner shared the gospel with us. And when God preserved His Word throughout the ages, He didn't do so by the power of popes and kings or by golden tablets being dropped down from heaven, but by the quite unseen efforts of scribal Christians who loved the Word of God that they were willing to give their lives to copying it for themselves and for others. And many of them, countless of them, died doing it. Brothers and sisters, we we need to realize that this book, that book in your lap is a treasure beyond what the majority of history could ever fathom having in their possession. The expense alone was prohibitive. To know the Word of God, you went to church and you listened to it read and you memorized it. But we have personal copies, copies upon copies in our homes And those copies have come down to us by the providential and sacrificial preservation of God at the cost of countless lives. The truth is the Bible has come down to us bathed in blood. And those who have possessed it have almost always suffered unrelenting persecution throughout the ages. Many times kings and emperors tried to eradicate this book from the earth. The Roman emperor Diocletian, who who, killed so many Christians and burned so many manuscripts, he thought he succeeded. He even inscribed on a a metal inscription, the Christian religion is destroyed and the worship of gods is restored. But nothing could be further from the truth. God would not be mocked. The very next emperor converted to Christianity, and he made Christianity legal in the Roman Empire and allowed it to flourish like never before. Here's the reality. God has promised to preserve his word. Isaiah 40. All flesh is like grass, all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. Or as Jesus said in Matthew 24, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. You hold in your possession God's Word. And the most treasured reality about this book is what Jesus has been telling us all along in the Gospel of John, that it points to Him, that it reveals Him. All Scripture bears witness to the Lord Jesus Christ. It is because of this book that we know Christ and that we know God through Christ. God has revealed Himself through His Son, which has been preserved for us in the pages of Holy Scripture we know and trust in the death and burial and resurrection of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of our sins because that message went out by the chosen apostles of Christ inspired by God to the ends of the earth. And we have it. We have it in our possession. This is the word of God. Do not neglect such a great treasure as this. Man shall not live by bread alone but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Feast here, dear Christian. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this remarkable treasure that we have in our possession. Thank you for your providential working throughout history. Thank you for the many men and women who lost their lives so that we could have your word, so that we could know Jesus Christ and understand the gospel and have our sins forgiven and have eternal life. Oh God, make us treasure your word. Help us to feed off of it every day. Thank you. Thank you that we have it. Thank you for Christ ready